So back in the shtetl, these two tailors come out from shul, and one sees the other and says, Beryl, did you hear the Rav's drasha? He says, yes, Shemel, I did. He says, did you hear? He's talking about Mashiach's going to come. There's going to be Tchias HaMesim, that there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. You know what that means for two tailors like us? He says, no, what does it mean, Shemel? He says, well, think about it. Um, all the people who are buried, they were buried in their tachrichim, in their, in their burial shrouds. So they're going to need clothing. Business is going to be booming. So uh, the other one thinks, he says, yeah, but you're forgetting something. When there's that resurrection, all the dead from all the generations come back to life, there's going to be all these new customers, that's true, but also all the tailors from all the generations are going to come back to life as well, so, that, so there's going to be that much more competition as well. So it's not really going to, going to help us in business. So he thinks for a second, he says, yes, Beryl, that's true, but you're forgetting one thing. We've got the latest styles. This week's uh, Parsha, Parsha's Achre, speaks about clothing, new clothing. What does it say? If you remember, many, many weeks ago, Parsha's Titzave, we learned about the Big Day Kuhuna, the clothing worn by the uh, Kohen and uh, the Kohen Gadol. Yes, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had special clothing of gold and silver and, and uh, turquoise and jewels. But there were, there were also simple clothing, uh, four white linen garments that the Kringoldo wore only one day a year, wore them on Yom Kippur as part of, and even on Yom Kippur, he did not wear them all day, he only wore them during the special parts of the Aveda, of the service that was done just for Yom Kippur. We read an interesting thing in Parshas Achre about this clothing. We read that Uva Arin El Elmeid, and Arin comes into the uh, tent of meeting, then he takes off the clothing, the white uh, linen garments that are special for Yom Kippur, that he wore when he enters the holy area. And he leaves them there. What does this mean? Rashi explains. He leaves, leaves them there. Malamed, this comes to teach, that these clothings, these items of clothing require gniza. That means they need to be buried, you know, like we do with uh, a holy article or a, or a holy book that's fallen into disrepair. We put it in gniza, we bury it. So this this clothing that he wore has to be buried. I'm continuing with the Rashi. He, he should never again wear these same four garments for another Yom Kippur. It's a very interesting thing. It's kind of wore these, clo these clothes for total, what, you know, uh, a few hours maybe? He wore them one day, and on that day he didn't even wear them all day. He barely wore them. And now we're told, bury them, put them away. And even if this same Kain Gadol serves next year, and his Kain Gadol again next year for another Yom Kippur, he cannot wear the same clothing again. He has to get brand new clothes. So we have to understand that. It seems a little bit strange. Um, but in order to understand that, that's usually how it works, isn't it? We have a specific question that leads us to, uh, to understanding a bigger idea. We have to understand the big idea of teshuva. And specifically, teshuva, repentance, as we, as we try to translate it in English, although it's more aptly translated as return, or restoration, or recovery, uh, being reinstated to one's essential godly self, 
Teshuva, as it is uh, specifically, though, how, how it's linked to kapara, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Kapara means uh, atonement. And that is a, it's a marvelous thing where not only do we say, let bygones be bygones, that the past is the past, and let's not dig it up again, but we actually experience repair and renewal so that the past deeds become as if they had never occurred. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wondrous and a marvelous thing. We have to understand the mechanics of atonement. How does kapoto work? How does it work that I did it, you know, something I did, you know, okay, I understand, I'm not going to be punished for it. My father can forgive me for it. But how does it go away? Which is what kapoto is and Yim Kippur uh, is all about. So if we're going to understand these clothing, the clothing items that get put away and, and buried and never worn again, uh, we'll understand also uh, Teshuvah and Kapoda uh, as well. But in order to understand both of these, I want to tell you first a story. And uh, as you probably know, if you watch this class, when we tell a story, it's not just because it's an interesting story, although we do try to tell interesting stories, but the purpose is that sometimes to bring out an idea, the easiest way, the clearest way to encapsulate a deep concept is to see how that concept comes alive in, in narrative form. There's a story about a young man who lived over a hundred years ago. He lived in Tsarist Russia, just before the revolution. And uh, he was a budding Talmud Chacham, a young scholar, a genius really, an exceptional, exceptional genius. And he was not from a Hasidic home, but he had friends in his town. He lived in white Russia. And he had friends in his town who were Lubavitcher Hasidim. So these Lubavitcher friends were trying to get him to go to the Rebbe, which at that time was the Rebbe Rishab. The Rebbe Rishab actually just had his 100th yard site a few weeks ago on base Nissan, the second day of the, the month of Nissan. So these friends were trying to get their, uh, this young man, this young genius to come to Lubavitch. He never really was interested. And then finally one day, somehow they convinced him and he came along for a Shabbos. And he was very taken with the whole experience. At the end of the Shabbos, then, he had Yechidus, private one-on-one -on -one audience with the Rebbe Rishab. And he, as customary, he wrote a note to bring to the Rebbe in his one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And he entered the, the Rebbe's holy Yechidus Tzimmer, the one-on-one the -on -one, uh, meeting room. And as he entered, he saw the Rebbe Rishab had, uh, he was looking in a sefer, he was learning, and he didn't look up as if he didn't even notice the young man who had just entered the room. And so the young man sort of stood there, and, and, and the Rebbe Rishab kept looking into his safer. It wasn't looking up. It wasn't acknowledging anyone who had come in. So the young man decided finally just to come over to the desk and take his paper, the note that he had written, just put it on the desk. And as he was about to do so, the Rebbe Rishab got up, but he wasn't reacting to the young man. He started pacing around, started pacing around the room, and he looked very distraught, and he started saying in Russian, and you'll forgive my terrible uh, accent in Russian, but he was saying, on, yeah, on. It's him, it's not him. On, yeah, on. It's him, it's not him. Back and forth like that, in Russian. Never acknowledging this young man, so he just sort of put his note on the desk, and he backed out of the room, and he left, and he didn't really understand what in the world had just transpired. He went back home, and some time passed, and there was an advertisement in a newspaper, in a non-Jewish newspaper, um, that the university in Petersburg, the, the imperial capital, uh, 
was making a contest. They published a math problem and they were asking people to try to solve the problem. So this young genius, he put his mind to the task and he wrote up a solution to the problem and he sent it into the university in Petersburg. And uh, he received a response from them that he had won and that he should come to claim his prize. Now Petersburg was not a town that was even accessible to Jews in many ways, um, to even enter the city. But now to be able to enter in such a prestigious way as the, the, the winner of this contest, this was a, an unusual thing. So he came to Petersburg, came to the university, and he was a religious Jew, and he looked he looked like a religious Jew, and the, the professors there were sort of taken aback by his appearance, but as they spoke with him, they saw he's the same genius who wrote the answer to the math problem. They, they, they took a liking to him, and um, they sort of brought him into their world, and over time, he became a star pupil. He enrolled in the university, and uh, at first, he tried to maintain his Judaism, but after a while it just, the challenge became too much for him and he let go of Jewish observance and um, eventually he no longer identified Jewishly at all. He became completely assimilated and really didn't think about Judaism. Then came a point where they wanted to offer him a professorship, to be more than just a, a student, to become a, become a master. And he was very flattered by the offer and eager to accept it. There was one condition. Uh, he had to formally be baptized as a follower of the Eastern Orthodox Church. That was part of the, the rules. So he didn't really do it because of you know, any religious conviction. Which he was you know, completely secular at that time, as were the, the other professors. But he did it because he felt it was expedient. You know, this is what he had to do in order to progress in his career. And since Judaism no longer meant anything to him, he didn't really feel a conflict about it. So he went, al he went along with it, and he, he, for he formally converted. He lived this way for a while. And um, he didn't really think much of it. He didn't really have any guilt over it wasn't something that really came up. But one day he was out hunting. He loved to hunt. That was one of the things he developed a taste for when he was uh, living in that world. So he was out hunting and he was riding on horseback and the horse somehow just went crazy and ran away with him on the horse. And he was very, very, he was, he was afraid for his life that the horse was going to throw him. And as the horse is galloping away and he's holding on for dear life he uttered what we call a foxhole prayer he said oh god if you save me from this i promise i'll be a good boy i'll go back to to, to judaism and what do you know the horse calmed down the horse stopped and he had made his promise so uh after that he started thinking about it it wasn't just the fact he made a promise it, that that sort of opened up his mind to reconsidering his whole path in life and now he really felt terribly remorseful and uh, regretted the whole the whole path that he had followed and he knew that he couldn't do this anymore he couldn't live in betrayal of his true self he had to return to to his identity as a jew problem was beyond the fact that it wasn't so simple just to you know change his religion back to being Jewish. He was, he was already, everything was built on, on you know, this, this lifestyle. So it wasn't so simple. But beyond that, in addition to that, more, more importantly, it was, it was simply dangerous. It was a risk to his life. He could have been, um, he could have been killed 
or, or, or at least, you know, violence could have been done to him. It was, it was not a uh, decision that was without some serious risk to his safety. So he decided the only way he can pull this off is he has to uh, escape. He has to run away into the night and not let anyone know where he's going. That's it. He just has to disappear without a trace. And that's what he did. Uh, he packed the bag, and in the middle of the night, he left all of his worldly possessions. He left everything. He just disappeared. And he started going incognito from town to town, village to village, living in taverns and inns. And uh, after a while, on the run, he was in a, in a tavern, and a group of officers from the, the military come barging into the, the tavern, and they start asking everyone to show their papers. Show ID. We need to see, see ID. So they came to this young, uh, the young man who was on the run, and they asked for his papers. Obviously, he did not have papers. For obvious reasons, he, he was not carrying his ID. He did not want to be identified as, uh, as who he was. So they said, in that case, you're coming with us. And they arrested him, and they brought him down to the police station. Now, at the police station, he realized that the, the whole raid, the fact they were going around asking everyone for papers, was because they were looking for him. It was worst-case scenario. They were there looking for him. They had been sent to go find him to catch him. And somehow they had you know, figured out where he was. So at the police station, how did he realize they were looking for him? The lead officer took out a picture. They had photographs in, in, in these days. This is in the, you know, the, the, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. So he takes out a photograph. It's a photograph of this guy, the way he looked only a few weeks earlier when he was a professor in the university as a, you know, as a, as, as a Christian, as a, you know, as a, as a convert to, to Christianity. So um, he, there he is in the picture as he looked in that life. But now here he is sitting in front of them, having run away from that, having done teshuva and reclaimed his Jewish identity. And uh, the officer is comparing the two images in front of him. He's looking at the picture of how this guy used to look for years. And now the image in front of him, the person sitting in front of him, how he looks right now at present. And he's looking at the two images side by side, and he's trying to figure it out. And he, and he says, on? Yeah, on. Tim? It's not him. On? Yeah, on. It's him? It's not him. And finally, yeah, on. It's not him. And they tell him, get out of here. Go. You're released. He walks out of the, the station all of a sudden it hits him. The words, those inexplicable words, those mysterious words from years earlier when he was in the holy Yechidus Tzimr, the room of the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab was seemingly in a trance-like state, seemingly did not recognize him, seemingly did not even acknowledge his presence. What was the Rebbe Rashab doing? He was pacing around and saying, on, yeah, on, it's him, it's not him. Whatever it was that was happening, transpiring, who understands the ways of, of a Rebbe, of a, of, a, of, a, of a holy man of God, but there was something transpiring on, on, on the spiritual plane that finally came to pass years later to save this young man from a harrowing fate. And that's the story. Now, as I said, we tell stories because uh, not because they're fun uh, or interesting or dramatic, but because sometimes a story is a great way of understanding an idea. 
What's the idea in this story? Again, I, I mentioned, you know, that whatever the Rebbe did, that spiritual stuff that I don't understand and it's beyond, beyond my pay grade. So I'm not going to pretend to understand the, the spiritual mechanics involved. But just on a simple level, on a simple level that we can relate to what happened, it's a story about somebody who abandoned his identity, took on a new identity, and then regretted that and wanted to reclaim his identity. And the whole punchline of the story is a question. Is it him or is it not him? Is it him or is it not him? This picture of what he looked like when he was an apostate, may the merciful protect us, when he had gone away from his Jewish identity. This picture of him, is it him or is it not him? Is it the same guy or it's not the same guy? Is this the person in front of me or it's not the person in front of me? And the conclusion, yeah, it's not him. It's not the same guy. That is Teshuvah. That is Teshuvah, simple and plain. The Rambam says in Hilchas Teshuvah that when somebody truly does Teshuvah, it's not just that he ceases doing behaviors that he used to do. It's not that. He becomes a new person. As if he were to say, in the words of the Rambam, Ani acher, I'm a different person. And I am no longer that person who did those actions. What do you mean you're no longer that person? You're the person. No, I'm not that person. That old version of myself is not me anymore. So it's not just I did it, but I don't do it anymore. No, someone else did it. Who did it? The old me, but that's not me anymore. I become someone else. Rabbi Dr. Tversky uh, Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, uh, a teacher of mine, um, told the story. He's told the story many times. I've heard him tell it a couple of times. That um, he always was trying to understand that Rambam. I mean, it sounds so lofty. I'm not that person. You know, what, it's so spiritual. But on a practical level, you know, how how can you see something like that? So he said it clicked for him. He was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the speaker there was someone who had been sober for 20 years. And he got up and he told his story about his recovery, becoming sober. And the guy said, simple like this, he says, The man I was, drink. The man I was, will drink again. Thank God I am not the man I was. And then it clicked for him. You understand? It's not, I used to drink, now I don't drink. No, no, no much deeper than that. The man I was, drank. And the man I was, <laughs> will, will drink again. That's what he does. I no longer do that. Why? Not because I stopped doing it, because, but because I'm not that person. I'm not the man I was. I'm a new person who doesn't do that. That's teshuva. So it's not just a change in behavior. It's a change in identity. I'm no longer that guy. Think about, today we have DNA evidence. And unfortunately, it comes out that sometimes people have been imprisoned wrongly, and they have sat in prison for years or for decades. And then the evidence comes out, the DNA, that uh, this person is not the person who did it. It's impossible. This is not the guy who did the crime. And then they release them. Well, think about Teshuvah kind of like this, that when you truly do Teshuvah, you become a new person. Now I'm a new person. I'm not that person who did those deeds. To the extent that it's like, as if your spiritual DNA had changed. So if they would check who you were when you did it and who you are now, they're two different guys. And how can you punish somebody else for, for somebody else for a crime that another guy did? 
So it's not just I used to do that, do those things, and I stopped. So therefore, don't punish me. No, I used to be that guy, but I'm not that guy. So if I'm not him, you can't punish me for what he did. That's what kapara is. Atonement is radical self-transformation, where you are a new person. You're not the person that you were. So it's not just that let bygones be, be bygones and Hashem can say, let's forget, let's move on. No, no, no. You are literally not that guy anymore, so you have truly a completely fresh, clean slate. And now we can understand why the Kohen Gadol had to have new clothes every year. Because even if he had served last year on Yom Kippur, that was last year's radical self-transformation. Radical reinvention. But in order for there to be kapara and forgiveness and atonement this year, he's got to do it again. He's got to become a completely new person than he was ever before. You know the difference between bespoke clothing and off the rack? Off the rack never really fits. Even when they do alterations, it never really fits. So think about it like this. Spiritually, the Kain Godel becomes a brand new person every year every Yom Kippur. And that's what brings atonement for the Jewish people, that renewal. That we're literally, as a nation, a brand new people because he, as a representative or a delegate of all of us, becomes a new person. So whatever clothing he wore last year, that was made for who he was last year. So maybe he didn't grow. Maybe physically, you know, he, he's, he's the same body. But spiritually, spiritually, that's what it's all about. He's a different guy than he was last year. So for him to wear his own clothes from last year's Yom Kippur would be like taking a suit off the rack. It would be like wearing something that was made for somebody else. And the only way to make it be bespoke, to really be custom-made, is that it has to be made again this year for who he is spiritually now as a brand new person. And this is a lesson to all of us. That there's no such thing as saying, I can't change, I'm stuck in my ways. I've been doing this for too long. Hashem gives us a path to teshuva, radical reinvention of self. And it's not even something that happens one time. It can happen many times in a lifetime. Just like that Kain Gadol, if he served many years, he would have to get brand new Yom Kippur clothes each year.